Hi, this is Anne Hawley with an exciting announcement from our parent podcast, The Story Grid. As some of you may know, I'm the author of a historical love story called Restraint, which I've been known to refer to from time to time as Pride and Prejudice meets Brokeback Mountain. Well, our fearless leader, Sean Coyne, has challenged me to analyze Annie Prue's original story, Brokeback Mountain, and write a story of my own using the same building blocks, but set in Jane Austen's English Regency period. I'll be taking over for Tim Grawl on the main Story Grid podcast for 10 weeks this summer, writing a novella in public and having it publicly edited by Sean. The first episode of our summer experiment goes live in mid-June. I hope you'll join me on this new writing adventure. And now, on with the roundtable. Welcome to Season 5 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. We're back after a lovely recording hiatus, and we're ready to dig into our new topics this season. If you're just finding us, this is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience, and we are so glad that you're here. My name is Kim Kessler, and I have the relaxing privilege of moderating the roundtable today. Doing the heavy lifting this week are four of my fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then each of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. This week, Anne pitched A Little Princess in order to begin her season five task of studying the differences between novels and their adaptations to film. A Little Princess is a novel by Frances Hodgson Burnett, originally published in 1905. The film we watched this week is the 1995 adaptation written by Richard Lagravenesa and directed by Alfonso Cuaron. It was only Cuaron's second film and his first in English for a Hollywood studio. And just a reminder that while A Little Princess is more or less a children's story, this is an adult conversation, and, you know, you may hear some adult words. Anne is going to start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Take it away, Anne. Okie dokie. Well, since I'm talking about novels and movies this season, I just want to say a few things about the novel. It's one of my favorites. It's been in print since 1905 in its final novel form and has been adapted to multiple movies and stage plays. Now, I've read and listened to the audiobook version many times. It's a really good audiobook. And for all that it's an incredibly corny story by 21st century standards, it's still pleasing and satisfying to those in its target audience, which I believe is generally girls and people who remember being girls. It's part of a pretty venerable tradition of boarding school stories, a tradition that has continued, surprisingly enough, right up to Harry Potter. So what's it all about? The genre in the novel is status admiration with a kind of a society secondary. And the movie, I will make the argument, hews a little closer to worldview, and we're going to talk about how it changes. The beginning hook, when seven-year-old Sarah Crewe is delivered by her father to Miss Minchin's boarding school... Select seminary for young ladies. She must adapt to the restrictions of her new life or else risk disappointing her beloved father. She does her best to adapt while maintaining her inner vision of her place and purpose in life and succeeds despite antagonism from envious classmates and from Miss Minchin, who, by the way, is one of the great villainesses of the English novel. 
In the middle build, when news of her father's death leaves Sarah alone and destitute, and Miss Minchin relegates her to servant status, Sarah must maintain her inner standards secretly or else succumb to the hardships and despair of her new status. She holds to her standards of how a real princess would behave and shows others how to do the same, unknowingly invoking the concern and help of admirers around her. In the ending payoff, and this is where the movie and the novel differ quite a bit. In the movie, after suffering some hardship and discomfort, Sarah awakens to a room full of gifts and luxuries from the stranger who's been watching her from next door. When, unbeknownst to her, her father turns up alive in that same next door house, they are reunited joyfully and the evil Miss Minchin becomes a chimney sweep. Now, in the novel, when Sarah's abuse at Miss Minchin's hands comes close to killing her with starvation, exhaustion, and exposure, Sarah must choose whether to carry on or give up. Her steadfastness attracts help from the next-door neighbor who provides for her not knowing who she is. He turns out to be her late father's best friend who adopts her and restores her father's fortune to her. Wonderful, Anne. Thank you so much. So please share with us what you found. Well, my study this season, as I said, is to look at the differences between novels and their filmed adaptations. It's important to understand right up front that movies based on novels are transformative works. Okay, they're never going to be the same. The artistic sensibilities of screenwriters, directors, and actors, as well as the hundreds of other people usually involved in a film production, all come into play. They transform the story in large ways and small ways for a whole variety of reasons, for better or for worse. Novels are created, on the other hand, more or less by a single mind, a single imagination. There are editorial passes. I'm speaking as an editor. Yes, another person can be involved. And uh, often an author's original vision of the novel will wind up becoming something quite different. But still, generally, there's only one name on the book cover. Now, I'm not here to say that novels are inherently better than movies or vice versa. Who doesn't love them both? They are very, very different art forms. Turning one into the other absolutely guarantees that the original will be changed. But I'm really interested in why people who love the novel are almost always disappointed in the film adaptation. This version of A Little Princess was moderately well-received in 1995. It had a critical Metascore of 83 out of 100. And taken on its own, it's a charming little sentimental historical story, and it works pretty well. But for fans of the novel, like me, it was a serious disappointment. Why? Well, I think mostly because it lacked the gravity and the emotional impact of the novel. And I just want to jump in here for a second, because I had exactly the same response, because I have read the novel as well. And when I was watching the film, I had the same response you did. So I'm really curious to hear why you think that is. Yeah, it felt lightweight and kind of unimportant. It didn't have a lasting impact. So yeah, I definitely want to talk about why. And I found three major reasons. First, and I think most egregiously, as I mentioned, they changed the ending. Reports of Captain Crewe's demise turn out to have been greatly exaggerated. That's Sarah's father, Captain Crewe. By contrast, in the novel, her father really dies. Now, Sarah is eventually restored to social status by her father's friend, but that restoration is incomplete. She's still an orphan. She still has suffered tremendous loss. The ending is happy, but it's bittersweet. Now, the movie hits the reset button and gives us an ending that I found just sickly sweet. Another uh, striking decision that I, the filmmakers made that I thought was 
off kilter was to show Sarah going back on her morals under duress and playing a couple of mean-spirited tricks. Uh, she frightens Lavinia, who's kind of the mean girl in the school, with a pretend curse that she will lose her beautiful hair, and which ex inexplicably kind of actually comes true, which is really weird. And uh, Sarah also dumps ashes down a chimney pot uh, and ruins a whole room in Miss Minchin's very clean house. And the movie kind of glosses over the fact that it's Sarah and Becky who are the house servants who will just have to clean that mess up. In the novel, Sarah's tempted a couple of times, but she never indulges in that sort of petty retribution. She approaches her lowest point and all she does, she has a single moment of complete despair and she takes it out on her doll in private and that's all she does. Now, a third filmmaking choice that I thought was odd was to amp up the obviousness. I suppose it's not odd, it's Hollywood, right? Sarah's internal moral heroism, which is key to the status admiration genre, wasn't enough. So they added a police chase, a nighttime escape between slippery rooftops, a death-defying moment of hanging by her fingertips from a wet ledge. In the novel, her heroism plays out entirely in simple everyday acts of kindness and courage in the face of her extreme hardship. And I think it's more valuable for that reason. Also, by the same token, apparently comic relief and romance were felt to be missing from the novel. So they took the character of Miss Amelia, who is the sort of assistant at the school and the younger sister of Miss, the evil Miss Minchin, and made her into kind of a running fat joke and then gave her an unnecessary romance, which was presented as ridiculous, presumably because she is a fat woman. So why do these changes matter? Mostly because they muddy the genre. In A Little Princess, the novel, we have an excellent, very clear example of a status admiration story. If you're interested in that genre, you could do a lot worse than read this book. Sarah starts high, she suffers terrible losses and goes very low, but never loses her moral compass. That's kind of the essence of the status admiration story. Like a true admiration protagonist, she endures these external changes without changing internally. And her steadfastness, in the meantime, changes the people around her. Those people reward her by repaying her goodness in the end. For instance, she gives hope and joy to Becky, who is the abused scullery maid in Miss Minchin's house. She helps the dim-witted Ermengarde, one of her fellow students, find a way to please her studious father. She ultimately gives Miss Amelia, the sister of Miss Minchin, the strength to stand up to her awful older sister. And when Sarah's starving herself, she saves the life of a starving beggar by giving away almost all of her food. Every one of these people plays a role in Sarah's restoration to status. The movie, by contrast, seems to tell more of a worldview story, as I mentioned. Sarah learns lessons about poverty and human nature, but the movie reduces her to sort of a typical girl in a maturation story by having her act out against her lot in life with pranks on the people who are meanest to her, and this erases her status admiration characteristics. Similarly, Sarah in the novel imagines herself as a princess in her darkest hours, not because she's longing to have her nice, beautiful possessions restored to her. These are things that her father, her rich father had lavished on her, but because to her, a princess represents kindness, generosity, nobility, and good character. The movie reduces that belief to the idea that girls are princesses because their fathers dote on them. I am a princess. Oh. All girls are. Even if they live in tiny old attics, even if they dress in rags, 
even if they aren't pretty or smart or young, they're still princesses, all of us. Didn't your father ever tell you that? Didn't he? The movie had to torture credibility in order to get Sarah and her amazingly still alive father into adjacent houses, but then keep them from discovering each other for almost half the story. They did this by making him temporarily blind, giving him amnesia, having a case of mistaken identity at the army hospital. Somehow, although he's in the British army, he's in a New York army hospital. There are a lot, somehow he has an American daughter. It's all really weird. There are a lot of coincidences and they're all centered around illogical elements that the filmmakers seem to think that the young audience wouldn't notice or care about. And I found that a little bit insulting. Why do movies make changes like this to great novels? This is the question I'm going to be asking all season. In this case, first of all, the novel is old-fashioned. It might have needed updating. Uh, Young readers of the early 1900s were definitely less protected and much more likely to have had a direct experience of a death in the family than an American moviegoer in 1995. Public health standards have improved and we haven't been in a war for a while. Perhaps the actual death of a parent was deemed too traumatizing for the modern audience. Hollywood movies, and this was Alfonso Cuaron's first Hollywood movies, are constrained by all sorts of calculations to maximize the potential audience. They have to be. They're very expensive to produce and they have to be popular. And popularity generally means a lack of subtlety. Nuance gives way to the obvious. Whatever the case, the original novel for me, anyway, is profound and indelible, whereas this Quaron film is is just charming. It's possibly touching. It's sweet. It's nice. And I know Kim has uh, quite a bit more to say about this later. So to sum up, the movie pulls its punches by smoothing over Sarah's genuine losses and hardships, which are very real in the novel, to the point where they barely seem to count. It injects comedy hijinks and an improbable action sequence, and it implies that nobody, quote unquote, could possibly want a serious internal genre story about a somber and genuinely principled little girl. The thing is, as novelists, we don't have to pull those punches. We don't have to appeal to millions, only to thousands, right? We can write novels that read exactly like a movie, but should we? We can go deeply and directly into characters' thoughts and motivations. We can take more than a 100 minutes to tell our stories. Now, I'm not advocating for needless length or Victorian-style exposition, although I do like those things. (laughs) But we can give our characters and our controlling ideas more space than a movie has to breathe and grow in our readers' minds. I think it would be incredibly cool to see a novel of mine turned into a movie, but that's not my goal in writing. I'm going to continue to explore the differences between novels and the movies adapted from them in this season so that I can really understand what makes a novel worth reading and writing for its own sake. Thank you, Anne. Yes to everything you said. One difference that bothered me were those moments. So Sarah's moments when she would stand up to Miss Minchin in the novel, they were nearly always in front of other girls. They were in classroom together and all the other girls were around. But in the film, they were not. They were much more one-on-one. And I was, you know, two specific moments came to mind. Um, There's the French lesson. And also, you know, when Sarah reasserts that all girls are princesses, you know, which is the clip that you, you played for us. And the way that she does it in the film is completely different than, you know, the way that she addresses the fact that she does still feel like a princess um, in front of Miss Minchin in the novel. And 
because these moments were more one-on-one in the film, that power struggle between Sarah and Miss Minchin wasn't as, you know, powerful. And I think that it's moments like this in the novel that also really help establish and solidify those status admiration life values that were that were just so missing in the film. And it's just it's such an interesting comparison. That's a great point, Kim, especially because what we usually see in these status admiration stories is that the protagonist inspires those around them. And Sarah does that to a certain extent with the stories that she's telling, but the really heroic acts of speaking truth to and standing up to tyrants don't happen in front of the other girls. And one could take away from that, that maybe that's not a proper thing for little girls to do. I agree too, that this becomes more of a worldview story, but Sarah lacks a mentor who is present and guiding her to accept and see the world differently. So neither genre is really well executed here. That's a great point. So now we're going to hear from Jari, and I'm really excited about what Jari has come up with in learning about through A Little Princess. So take it away, Jari. Uh, thanks, Kim. So this season, I'm looking at love stories to get a better idea of how to use this best-selling external genre as the story spine for my memoir. Thankfully, most stories have some sort of love in them, albeit not strictly of the obsession, courtship, or marriage variety that make up the story grid love genre. Love, as they say, conquers all, and that's part of why a little princess tugs at my heartstrings. Our protagonist, Sarah, is an imaginative young girl whose father is a wealthy English widower. They live in India, and that affords Sarah with a wealth of sights and sounds to fuel her imagination. It's clear from the movie that Sarah's father adores her, but war is broken out, I mean, in the movie version, and he must send her away to a boarding school where to show his love, he spares no expense for her comforts. He gives her a doll that can magically transport hugs between him and Sarah. This doll will be the only thing Sarah keeps during the ordeal to come. Ironically, it's her father's spare-no-expense show of affection that will get Sarah in trouble, since it's all this wealth that makes the school headmistress, Miss Minchin, jealous of her wealth. Often, you see paternal love displayed this way. A loving father, instead of sacrificing career or glory, materially provides for his loved ones, but is still absent. There is no doubt that Captain Crew loves his daughter, but he also loves his country, and that seems to outweigh his love of Sarah, although he's conflicted about leaving her. Now, during this time in history, it was common for parents to send their children to boarding school, I mean, if they could afford it. So this is not uncommon. Yet as the only parent, you would think that loving your daughter after she has lost her mother would override duty to country. Maybe in present day, that might be the attitude, but my guess is at the beginning of the 1900s, that was a perfectly acceptable thing to do. I'm sure that for 1900s English slash American society, that was even construed as loving for one's child. You know, you're you're expanding on something that, that I hadn't really consciously thought out, and it's one of the main problematic differences between the movie and the novel here, and that's that the movie makes Captain Crew into the hero. In the novel, for one thing, it's not set during World War I. It's a little earlier. Uh, Sarah is clearly and explicitly stronger and more principled than her own father. He loves her. Yes, he's kind. He's generous. But he's described in the novel as young, handsome, and carefree. He views his daughter as a pal and a companion. It's made very clear. He's a captain, but he's no longer a soldier, and it's not wartime. He's described as a gambling fool who recklessly loses his fortune. And it's implied in the novel that though he loves and misses his daughter, he's really having kind of a good time in back in India without her. 
And it's this relative moral weakness that really serves to amplify Sarah's moral strength in the novel. And this is removed in the movie. And I, I felt that was a real kind of an unfortunate choice. Oh, that's an excellent point, Anne. I mean, this movie definitely has the father is hero vibe. And maybe it's directly targeted, targeted, excuse me, to a US audience since, I mean, US audience appear to love happy endings. So yeah, I could see that. And it, it did, it's a little cheesy, I would say. And I, I would like to have seen more of the novel in it where Sarah is the stronger one uh, than her father. Uh, so what does the little princess teach us about how to write paternal love into our stories? Well, there seems to be three types of paternal love storylines. One that is a call to adventure, like a little princess or Kramer versus Kramer. One where he has to be the primary caregiver, like Mr. Mom. And the third, an outsider watching it all happen, like Mrs. Doubtfire or Father of the Bride. The conflict in the call to adventure paternal love subplot is the father's desire for external fame, fortune, or prestige that pulls him away from his children in the name of duty, honor, or providing for them. The father must then decide what path to pursue. Does he venture out to seek his fortune or does he stay to take care of his family? That's the question that is raised in Kramer vs. Kramer as an example. The external quest must be plausible for the time frame of the story. Would the call of war be as applicable today as it is in the 1900s? I'd say so. The same would be said for going far away to secure work to provide for your family or ascending the career ladder. If you're going to write a subplot or main plot that deals with the call to adventure paternal love, then I think there's some conventions you could consider. Now, these aren't all inclusive. These are just sort of the ones I, I came up with right now. The best bad choice the father makes must be believable for the time frame. War is always a good one to choose. A risky business venture is next, as long as it's the only way to provide for his children or his family. The tension raises if the mother is somewhere not in the picture. She could be deceased or otherwise not available. If she is around, then there's some sort of tension should exist between them, either divorce or infidelity or some sort of marital problems. You can raise the stakes if the father has an obsession or flaw that drives him to pursue an external success to validate himself, since the love of his kids is not enough. In the end, the lesson is that pursuing the external goal was not worth risking losing the love and time spent with his kids. The ending can either be happy or sad, and in this case, it's a happy ending. For the call to adventure paternal love subplot, it always seems to come down to the father pursuing fame, fortune, or prestige at the expense of spending time with his children, only to realize, as I said before, that no amount of fame, fortune, or prestige can replace that time lost. As for the other two, primary caregiver or outsider looking in, I did try and think of some conventions that apply. So here, here are a couple. I mean, if you guys have any more, please let me know. So for the primary caregiver role, the traditional mother-father role is reversed due to divorce or death or economic hard times, as in Mr. Mom, the, the wife has got a better job than the husband. The gender stereotypes and social norms provide conflict that must be overcome. So again, in Mr. Mom, like being the primary caregiver for kids is totally out of character in that time. And for the outsider looking in, again, it's the stereotype, gender stereotypes and social norms that provide a lot of conflict. And I think the other one is the father is striving to gain redemption or the father wants their actual worldview acknowledged or their contribution. So yeah, I mean, what, do, what does everyone think? Any good examples of paternal love subplots or types? I mean, if you do have any, hey, tweet us or let us know in the comments. Or, you know, I'm always looking to see how I can expand my knowledge of all types of love. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I just want to jump in for a quick second. Um, because we get a lot of questions about this kind of thing at StoryGrid. When Sean talks about the love story as a genre, what he's talking about are stories that involve the possibility of sex. Now, Jari here obviously is talking about parental love, which in The Little Princess in, does not in any way involve sex. <laughs> um, and he's absolutely right. Yeah, it's not that kind of movie. <laughs> it's not that kind of movie. But with, thank God. But within the story yeah. grid genre clover, this kind of love, parental love, would fall more under a society domestic content genre versus the love story. So I just wanted to jump in and, and clarify that because I get that question a lot. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point, Valerie. So in the society domestic content genre, I guess this would kind of be a scene type, maybe like father goes off to adventure or something like that, or father reverses role or, you know, father is now mother. I don't know. I mean, we could make this up all day, but uh, yeah, thanks for that. That's actually a really good insight. I think it's so interesting, the things that you have mentioned about a father choosing to be absent because they're going off to look for, you know, they have these other priorities, right? And it's just, as just a total aside, one of my clients is a nonfiction client, and he's writing a book all about father absence as the root of society's ills, right? And so it's just fascinating that I, because I've been working with him, now all the stories that we study that are fiction stories, like those themes constantly are coming up over and over and over again. And it's just society's way of trying to metabolize what do we do? How, when do we be present? When do we be absent? What is the best way to be a father? And all those questions are so fascinating to me. So anyway, I'm just, I love that you pointed this out about paternal love and it's, yeah, it's just great, great stuff. Thanks. Okay. So now we're going to hear from Leslie. Okay, I'm going to come at A Little Princess from a couple of different angles. And the first I want to look at is point of view. Now, in an internal genre story, it's really useful to have some kind of omniscience because we can see the difference between what the protagonist is thinking and feeling and compare it to what they say and do. Of course, that doesn't always translate well to film. We get pensive looks where we must intuit what Sarah is thinking, or she, in essence, speaks her thoughts, but it's not the same. Now, in the novel, we get to know Sarah through her thoughts and understanding, and we can see how mature and sophisticated she is for her age. This is one way the author sets up Sarah's arc and makes it believable. Of course, we know this. The written form of a story is almost always better than the movie. But as story grid editors, we don't stop with that assessment. We're driven to get to the bottom of it. Now, clear point of view choices are one of the ways that the novel offers more than the film. But beyond that, it's really important that we understand that point of view and the narrative device choices aren't just about which pronoun we use to refer to the protagonist. I just want to weigh in here for a second. One of the limitations of making a movie out of a novel like this is simply that very few child actors have the chops to convey what we would consider omniscient, you know, uh, free indirect thoughts and feelings with their facial expressions. And, and this actress, she was charming, but definitely didn't didn't have that. So they had to work around any idea of um, free indirect internal thoughts of the character by just taking them out or making them really obvious in dialogue. 
Right, right. And so in the novel too, we have an overt narrator, but she, and she feels feminine, the voice feels very feminine to me. She's not identified, but someone is clearly speaking to us. We might imagine someone like Sarah telling this story to a young girl to help her through a hard time, but we don't get that sense in the film. It feels more like we're eavesdropping on the events of Sarah's life. No one's guiding us. No one's pointing to particular events and helping us make sense of what they mean. In the novel, we see the events outside of Sarah's perception, but it's all cast in a magical sense. And this benevolent storyteller doesn't want us to lose heart and serves actually as a mentor for us, fortifying and inoculating us against hard times. Like Anne is looking at, why would they change from the book? I want to look at that too. Omniscience is really hard to convey in film. Global internal genres are generally more difficult to portray in film, and we often see some kind of framing story or nonlinear structure, perhaps epistolary elements or other narrative devices that stand in for omniscience. A couple of examples uh, from last season include Kim's Picks, A Man Called Uva, and Fundamentals of Caring. Now, I think the story loses a lot with the absence of this element in the film, and it is more than just the general rule that a book is often better than the movie. I want to look at adaptations generally, too. As Anne explained, Sarah's father lives in the film and in the novel doesn't. Sarah is saved by the man who got Captain Crew into trouble, which allows for a sort of redemption for him, which adds layers to the story. And I got to wondering about, is the rationale behind this choice similar to the way that Grimm's fairy tales and other folk tales have been altered or sanitized for modern children because they seem too violent and scary for our times? Regardless, the result here is that Sarah doesn't really lose anything, and that win-but-lose or lose-but-win ending is a key convention of the status admiration story. She goes back to life as usual. In fact, she gains a new sister. And here are a few other moments that didn't work from my perspective. In the novel, Sarah doesn't do anything externally that is extraordinary outside of what a typical young girl could physically do. There is a sense that magic is present, but for example, she doesn't leap up and grab the side of a building in the rain and pull herself up, a feat that would be difficult for almost anyone. It seems more fitting in a Marvel Universe film than a story like this. And that scene really felt out of sync with the rest of the story. Also, and Anne pointed this out, but I just really want to underline this, that the scene where Sarah gives the bun to another girl just isn't as meaningful or powerful as it is in the book because there's no setup to show how hungry Sarah truly is. She is starving, and that makes a big difference. We miss that more lengthy conversation with the baker, too, who is inspired by Sarah's sacrifice. In the film, it's snowy and cold in some scenes, but we don't really see or experience how cold Sarah is, how her shoes are criminally too small for her and don't keep her feet dry. 
Now, this could easily be set up because of how the girls walk carelessly through the water early in the story, but this isn't brought out in later scenes. So much of this is probably due to time, budgetary constraints, a whole wide range of reasons. But still, we can look at this to make our story stronger because we want to make sure that we don't miss these points. One final minor point is that Lavinia's change, the, uh, one of the girls who doesn't like Sarah, her change at the end, coming to love and appreciate Sarah, is in no way earned at all. So I found that um, to be, that pulled me out of the story in that moment, which isn't a good thing to do in the resolution. Well, something else that's interesting to me is that I found the book more believable than the movie. Magical realism is employed in both the movie and the book, and it's a great subset of the realism genre, but the story and the magic within it needs to be internally consistent. And so the question is not, do these events make sense in our world, but does it make sense in this world that's been set up by the story creator? And the magic that happens in the film seems more haphazard, and within the story, it doesn't seem to be grounded in an internally consistent logic. So, Leslie, what do you think about the content of the fantasy stories? I mean, the storyline about the prince and the princess seems to parallel the real story. Right. I'm glad you brought this up because despite its shortcomings in terms of culture and and that presentation, I think including the stories that mirrored what was happening in Sarah's father's life was an interesting innovation. I think it's important to note, too, that in the novel, every story that Sarah tells herself or her friends, and I, and, and let's point out clearly that a lot of the novel is about, and the movie, is about Sarah telling stories, Right. The stories that she tells in the novel are more typically drawn from European folklore. And so in the movie, the decision to recreate the Indian classic story is probably it's the movie's way of trying to show the life in India that Sarah left behind, which in the novel is just given in exposition, right? Now, some critical viewers today of the movie, which is 25 years old, view that as Orientalism or as exoticizing Indian culture. And that crossed my mind as well, because, you know, 1995 was a long time ago in cultural years. And oddly, I felt that the novel's treatment of India and the Indian character Ramdas was a bit less problematic than what the movie did 90 years later, because Ramdas was a real ordinary Indian man and not a fantasy figure. Great point. One of the other things I want to look at is the spectrum of adaptation. So on one side, you have the adaptation of a novel to a film as in A Little Princess. And on the other end of that spectrum, you might see an adaptation of a classic into a contemporary story or the way we use a masterwork to tell our story, like taking the Bhagavad Gita and converting it into The Legend of Bagger Vance, as Stephen Pressfield did. Now, you can see how many of the challenges that the writer faces are similar. So where should you start? Well, I recommend starting by identifying what is most interesting to you about the story that you want to adapt, but then go deeper. What are the decisions the author made in the original? What could that look like in your story? How do you innovate that? How can you subvert expectations in a positive way? 
And for me, the takeaway here is not that this is a terrible adaptation or a terrible story. People enjoy it, especially the target audience. I enjoyed a lot of it, and not just because the actor who plays Captain Crew also plays Sir Davos, the Onion Knight, on a certain series that I love. (laughs) The point is that the story could be stronger. As Anne mentioned above, the emotional impact could be dialed up to make this story great, which is exactly what the author of the novel did. Thank you, Leslie. It's so fascinating, all of the depth that you're always able to bring out. So I have to take a little pause here and go on a a mild rant. In the film, the father amnesia plot for me was much less believable than the father's business partner searching for her to make amends, as we see in the novel. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. As a girl whose father died when she was young, I love that Sarah gets her daddy back. But maybe I'm also really annoyed because it's all a bit too perfect and it doesn't ring true for me in that big meta why sense of the of what a story really is. What's the prescriptive tale of the film version? When tragedy strikes and misfortune befalls you, stay reasonably good and your dad will come back to you? Sorry folks, ain't no such thing. It's beauty for ashes, not zero ashes. That is such a good take, Kim. Thank you for bringing that out. It's it's visceral in my guts, Anne. It's like the to me it's the only reason why we tell stories, right? We have to make sense of the chaos and it doesn't mean we don't have chaos. We just have to find a new way to look at it. Absolutely. You know, and the novel does something to me, you know, which is so much more satisfying. Tragedy does strike and misfortune will come. But if you stay true to what you know is right, you will rise. And the strength and the love that you show will spread to those around you. Maintaining your moral code doesn't magically fix things, but it will always serve your greatest good. But all that said... I have to admit that even though I like the novel more and even though the film ending is too saccharine and it makes me slightly bitter about the message that it's sending, I still effing tear up when her daddy calls her name and they embrace. Oh, God, me too. There's just so many conflicting emotions happening right now. And I have to say, I think that moment is nearly on par with Rocky's Adrian. What do you think about when the 15th round you're coming out? Okay, so now that I've got that all off my chest, I feel cleansed. Uh, We can move on and we can hear from Valerie. Thank you, Kim. So for my own film choices in season five, I'm going to be studying one particular genre, and that's the psychological thriller, because that's what I'm writing. But for the other 12 films this season, I'm going to look at empathy. I want to examine how screenwriters have or have not created empathetic protagonists, and I want to understand how this affects the story as a whole. But first, let's take a quick look at what we mean by empathy and why having an empathetic protagonist is important. Empathy is when we can understand or relate to and share the emotions of another. It's when we know what it's like to actually feel the way the protagonist is feeling. That makes it 
like totally different from sympathy. Sympathy is also good, but it's not empathy. We've heard Sean say that specificity begets universality. I mean, if he said that once, he said it a thousand times. And part of what he's getting at with this is empathy. A protagonist is going through a specific experience that we may or may not have gone through, but that experience gives rise to feelings that we have had in our own lives. And this is exactly what Kim was just talking about. Empathy is the thing that engages the audience in the story. And this is what makes us care about what happens to to the protagonist. It's what makes us cheer them on and hope that they will get their objects of desire. For example, and it's funny, Kim just talked about Rocky because I'm going to talk about Rocky again. (laughs) I have never been a boxer or even an amateur athlete. I am at best a recreational athlete. I've never been a man and I have never even been to Philadelphia. But I know what it feels like to want something more than what I have, to want a better life than I have. I know what it's like to go up against such incredible odds that going the distance is a win. That means I can easily relate to Rocky Balboa. I have huge empathy for him. I am cheering him on because a win for him is a win for me. If he can do it, I can do it. And really, that's what story is all about. Right? I mean, Kim just said this exact same thing, and I agree with her 110%. Story is about change. It reflects society. It teaches us something about what it means to be human. This is one of the many things that the King's Speech did so well. Now, I will spare you another huge monologue about how amazing that film is, but seriously, it is a brilliant example of empathy. None of us has been the King of England but we've all suffered at the hands of others. In fact, A Little Princess uses some of the same elements that the King's Speech does to tap into empathy, although the approaches between the two films, or between the two stories, could not be more different. We're in the middle of Sarah's childhood, whereas we're reflecting back on Birdie's, which allows us to see how the nanny's behavior affected him over time, and honestly, it's heartbreaking. Okay, so... How is empathy created in A Little Princess? It would be really easy to point to facts like Sarah is a child and therefore powerless. It's wartime, her mother's dead, her father has had to leave her at a boarding school. And all all of these things are true, but these are the things that create the situation she's in. They create a situation where empathy can bloom, but they don't in and of themselves create empathy. And just like everyone else has already said, I think Frances Hodgson Burnett does a much better job than the film, to be honest. And this is partly due to the screenplay, but also due to the acting. I don't want to get into the acting because that's irrelevant to us as novelists, right? But we can still learn something here. In a novel, readers can get into the heads of the protagonists. And Leslie just spoke about this too. This makes me happy that we're all picking up on the same things here because these are broad strokes lessons that we can all take away from this particular film. So as writers, we can get into the heads of our protagonists and that allows Burnett to show us Sarah's struggles with the new rules and her new environment. We've all been the outsider, so we can more easily relate to how Sarah's feeling. Harry Potter and like a bajillion other children's books use the same trick. It, it works. The outsiders, right? That's what that's all about. 
But even with this situation, Sarah isn't particularly empathetic until the end of the story. Really, she's just too good. And I think what I was picking up on here is the same types of things that the others have already said, and that's the issue with the genre, right? The genre was not clearly defined, so therefore the character wasn't clearly defined, or her situation or her arc didn't come out the way I would have wanted it to, to create true empathy. So I get that Burnett is presenting the ideal way a little girl should behave, like a little princess, right? Except we're not little princesses, and... I don't know, maybe this is just because I finished a huge big deep dive into Dracula, which is all about our shadow selves. I don't know. But we all have a shadow self and we all are struggling with it. So people behave more like Anne Shirley or Harry Potter or Dennis the Menace or even Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. So Sarah's sugary sweetness, in my opinion, is a barrier to empathy. I kept wanting her to lash out, and maybe this is because the film presents itself more like a maturation story, as Anne talked about right off the top of this episode. So yeah, she did put a hex on Lavinia, which does inexplicably somehow work, and she does dump the coal, but you know, that felt like it was a little, too little too late for me. And Anne already pointed out the inconsistencies here with the novel, and I'm wondering, actually, if it was an attempt to make Sarah more relatable, because in the novel, Sarah is even better. <laughs> She's more good. <laughs> she, she is. And, you know, one thing that Leslie said, and I had not thought about this until we started recording, but in a status or, you know, the various internal genre stories, the role of the mentor is extremely important. And one thing that is really anomalous about A Little Princess is that Sarah Crew seems to have been self-mentored. There's no evidence of a real mentor for her goodness. It's, it's explicit on the page. She was just sort of born this way. She's just unusual. That's a little bit weak. And I think kind of what you're sensing is that it isn't fully built up or explained, even in the novel, why or how she became so steadfast and so pure. Right, exactly. And none of us are born that way, right? <laughs> we are born with the shadow side firmly in place. And and this is one of the things I love about Harry Potter, and maybe it's because my kids were growing up while the Harry Potter series was coming out, but uh, Rowling really talks about it as being a personal choice. You have goodness in you and you have evil in you. It's a choice as to which type of person you want to be. So this is really cool to me that we're all picking, we're all picking up on the same kind of thing. Now, empathy does have a certain amount of subjectivity, right? This is art that's how it is. But for me, the emotional connection didn't happen until the very end of the film. And this is exactly what, what Kim just said. These are the downfalls of coming right at the end, right? Everything I'm saying has already been said. So this comes right at the end of the film when Sarah's father doesn't recognize her. And yep, boy, you got to have your Kleenex with you at that part of the film, because this is actually about abandonment, right? And whether we've actually been abandoned or not, it's a primal fear that we've all had at all phases of our lives. It doesn't matter if, you know, when we were kids, whether it's now as adults in relationships, this fear of abandonment is very real. So even though her father left her at the boarding school in the beginning, Hook, he didn't abandon her, right? The, the idea is that he's going to come back when she has grown up a little bit and that she's there to receive her education. 
But here in this scene, her hopes have been raised only to be dashed. She is being rejected by her only surviving parent. And holy Hannah, that is powerful stuff. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. So there isn't really an opportunity for the tension to build, which means there isn't really a catharsis that we really want at the end of a story. But, you know, it is on the right track. I was thinking, as everyone was talking, how much in the novel, and I think what I love about the novel and Sarah in the novel, because she kind of reminds me of Jane Eyre, who is one of my favorite heroines of all time. And I mean, Jane, she has struggle from the outset, right? Like she's raised by her aunt early on. She doesn't, you know, her parents have died and she doesn't really, I don't know, she just, she doesn't have the same kind of upbringing that Sarah goes through. But there is a certain like inborn dignity and self-respect that Jane has for herself. And so she, she's just, it is, there's something about her that is that way. That, that is how Sarah is in the book. And I guess what it does for me, even though maybe it's not entirely believable or or whatever, it's like I need that role model. I need to believe that that those people do exist and so that I can do it. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I can tell I'm getting really teary <laughs> at this point in the podcast. And man, Valerie, listening to you talk all about abandonment, I can tell that must just be a real visceral response for me because I know that even um, even when you've lost a parent, you know, in death, you know, not by any, you know, haven't been abandoned by choice, but it does feel that way, right? It feels like you've been left behind. And, um, and so those are, there are some really visceral things. And I think even in Jane Eyre that she goes through that a lot too. So there's something about these stories that are very, they kick me right in the guts. So anyway, it's been a fabulous discussion and I just, I just appreciate everybody's depth that they bring every time we get together. So Whew. Okay. Uh, to wind up this episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from the StoryGrid blog from Jim Luther. Now, Jim writes, Sean, you're very clear that each genre has specific obligatory scenes that are critical for the book to work. I get that. But have we conditioned our readers so much that they would get perhaps a little bored looking for the necessary obligatory scenes that it becomes too predictable? For instance, in thrillers, you need the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. Wouldn't readers become so conditioned that they know it's coming and know the protagonist will get out of it no matter how powerful the villain is? Would there be other ways to accomplish this? For instance, maybe the protagonist is at the mercy of the villain, but she doesn't know it. I suppose I may be answering my own question in that you say how important it is to surprise the reader in every scene. So, Leslie, can you answer that for us? Yes. Thanks, Jim. This is a great question. And I think you are on the right track when you're thinking about, is there another way to do this? So the short answer is that readers of a genre never seem to get tired of the obligatory scenes when they are executed well. And to me, that includes two elements. First, presenting the necessary ingredients of the genre, and second, doing it in an unexpected way the same but different. These scenes are the way the life values in the story are presented and the way things change. This is how books within a genre are in conversation with one another. And really, those obligatory scenes, particularly the core event, are the heart and point of the story. 
The genres, as Sean identifies them in the story grid, are connected to human needs. So we go to stories for entertainment, but also often to satisfy our need to understand basic human problems. We might not even realize we're doing that, though. The beginning hook establishes the basic problem. It complicates through the middle build and reaches its peak in the ending payoff with the core event. That is when the life value changes and the core emotion is at its peak. The core event in a thriller, as you mentioned, is the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. And if that doesn't happen, then the original problem isn't fully resolved in a way that makes sense, that is satisfying. And by the same token, if you include it, but in a way that is precisely the same as it's been done elsewhere, it won't be satisfying then either. To innovate, consider what your unique take is on these scenes. Now, does that mean you can't tell a good story without hitting these notes? Some writers might choose to break structure because they want to say something about the cultural narrative or perhaps about stories generally. And I think the documentary Examined Life is a great example of this. There is some value in this level of experimentation, and you can take that route. Just realize that it changes the way the reader receives the work, and therefore who the ideal reader for your story is and the size of that audience. So you want to understand why you're doing that and what you hope to achieve. So key takeaways, there are pitfalls to look out for not including the scene without a good reason, and sometimes this is resistance, so really question your motives here. And then writing a cliched scene that's been done over and over again. To solve these problems, first read deeply within your genre to understand what's been done and to understand what readers expect. Second, read widely outside your genre to find connections and different ways of looking at obligatory scenes. Then, Make sure your story includes these necessary ingredients, unless you're intentionally breaking structure, and either way, find your unique take on these genres and these stories and the ingredients or their absence. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. If you have a question about key differences between novels and movies or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Week one of season five is in the books. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into A Little Princess. We hope our discussion has helped you think about the storytelling differences between a novel and a film adaptation. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Now, join us next time as Leslie explores what makes a great epic action film with Thor Ragnarok. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. 